happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Escape to summer with Victoria's Secret's just-arrived collection of swim and other sun-ready silhouettes. Pack your bags with new styles from the Very Sexy collection, like the made-to-be-seen Very Sexy push-up bra, in on-trend hues like green and citron and black shine. Rewind to the future with the VS Archives Swim Collection, inspired by Victoria's Secret's classic looks from the 90s and early 2000s. Plus, mix and match with their wide range of bikini tops and bottoms to find your dream suit. Shop now at your closest Victoria's Secret store or online at victoriasecret.com. Welcome to The Laverne Cox Show, a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. I ate only like lettuce and toast for three months. And then I remember going to my doctor after that summer and I had changed sizes pretty radically. Clearly that's what happens when you don't eat anything. And he just said, congratulations. And if you just keep losing weight, maybe you can date one of my sons. And there was no question of this child on the verge of pubescence. Like what's going on? Why are you, what what are you doing differently? This is alarming. There was just none of that from anybody. Hello, everyone. I'm Laverne Cox, and welcome to The Laverne Cox Show. On this episode, we're discussing fat phobia and diet culture. Now, as an actress, I've been very lucky that I've worked on productions where no one's ever asked me to lose weight and I haven't ever been body shamed in the context of my acting work. But when it comes to fashion and red carpets and magazine shoots, it's nothing very different. When I've had photo shoots, particularly for higher fashion magazines, I've gone in and there have not been clothes that fit me. And I'm generally a size 10 or 12. Occasionally I've been a size 8, but um, my weight has probably fluctuated within 30 pounds since I've been in the public eye. It is very difficult not to internalize feelings of being less than because I'm not sample size. But what changed my perspective on all of this was the work of my guest today, Virgie Tobar. Virgie is the author of the books, You Have the Right to Remain Fat and The Self-Love Revolution, Radical Body Positivity for Girls of Color. She is also a contributor for Forbes.com, where she covers the plus-size market and how to end weight-based discrimination at work. Her podcast, 
Rebel Eaters Club investigates the North American relationship to food and body. I couldn't be more thrilled she's here to discuss this important subject matter. Please enjoy my conversation with Virgie Tobar. Virgie, how are you doing today, darling? I'm so good. I was just reading your piece in paper and it's filled me with inspiration. And I really want to talk about horror movies. But whatever you want to talk about, let's do it. (laughs) (laughs) The funny thing is, so the funny thing is that in Bad Hair, the film that um, I talk about in that paper magazine cover story, I play a character named Virgie. (laughs) Yes, I know. It was so exciting. (laughs) So I... Okay, so I do want to say this. I became aware of your book, and then my friend Matt McGorry shared an excerpt of your book on Instagram, and it stopped me in my tracks. And the moment I, I saw it, I was like, oh my God, this is me. So I went and um, read your book immediately, and I cried a lot, and I made mm. me think, and I knew that we needed to have a moment like this someday, and I'm so excited that we're having it now. Can we start with language? Because you use the word fat in the title of your book, You Have the Right to Remain Fat. You call yourself a fat activist, but there are a lot of people out there who do not embrace the word fat. (laughs) We have words like curvy, we have words like overweight, plus size. I was on Twitter one time and I used the word overweight and someone was like, that's problematic. Can you Mm. tell us in the fat activist movement what language do we want to let go of? What have we reclaimed? What language should we be using to talk about this? Yeah, I think that fat really is the word that we use to talk about bigger bodies. And there's definitely a lot of interrogation and criticism and, you know, just kind of like critical awareness of medicalizing and pathologizing terms like overweight or obese, which are just essentially ways of medicalizing a type of body. But I think another important thing is when you are somebody who is living in a bigger body, you get to decide what language you want to use about your body. So I think that there's a political vernacular that is useful to understand. But when it comes to the individual experience, whatever language feels right is really the language that people should stick with. And I think also there's a code switching element, right? Like Mm. I might not use the word fat to talk about myself the first time I meet somebody if I don't know where they stand on this or if I just don't want to have a 35 minute conversation about whatever their attitudes about it are, right? So I think there's a lot of fluidity. There's a lot of change that's happening both on the individual and the political level. And I think that there are people who say plus size is offensive. There are people who say fat is offensive. Or even within the movement, there's a lot of disagreement. And I think that's really powerful because we're trying to create an identity in a culture where our humanity has just been fully denied. Mm. Oh, and I think that is what I hope to get across to people that reading your book, it is so clear your humanity and what this struggle is. And I hope people will go out and read You Have the Right to Remain Fat. It totally changed me. But can you talk to us about that journey, how you came to be a fat activist? What were some of the first times in your life where you even realized that fat was a thing and that it was an issue? Yeah, I come from a fat family. In some ways, like my journey to being a fat activist started with being born 
into a culture that hates brown people, hates fat people, hates women and girls. And I'm at the intersection of those things. And I think growing up, I did not learn fat phobia from my family. I learned a lot of love and and self-acceptance, actually. Mm. But it was when I was about five, when I was introduced to kindergarten, when the word fat became part of my life. And I had no... I had no context for that word as a negative thing. It wasn't in my world before then. And then it was all of a sudden, it was everything in my world. Mm. And I mean, looking back on it, it was really Laverne. It was like an onslaught, you know? It just felt like this united front of people who wanted to put me in my place. Mm. And it just felt like they didn't stop until, I mean, they didn't stop even after I had internalized the message that something was wrong with me. And I was working actively to try and not be that thing. And the way that I was introduced to it was, no one will ever love you. You are ugly. You are monstrous. And like, Mm. when you think about a five-year-old hearing about the idea that they're never going to get love is just, it's like unthinkable, right? And so the stakes felt so high. And the thought was, right, if I just became thin, the torture, the abuse would stop. And so it was my fault. It was my job then to become the kind of person who didn't get tortured by these people. And I really took that on, that kind of ideology of like victim blaming. I completely accepted it. I had no alternative. And so I did what a lot of fat people do, which is diet, work really hard. I mean, the thing that's really interesting now looking back as sort of somebody who does this work all the time, like dieting, pretty much always is progressive because the body is fighting against the impulse of food restriction. So as you diet, it might start out mild, quote unquote, but it will get more intense over time because your body is actively pushing against it, assimilating, reassimilating. For somebody like me, it was inevitable that I was going to end up essentially having an eating disorder, like an undiagnosed eating disorder, where I was starving myself for very long periods of time. I just want to slow you down a little bit because I just want everyone to be with you and to feel what I feel. First of Mm. all, what you just said, you said you developed an eating disorder where you were starving yourself for long periods of time. At what point did that develop? Yeah, honestly, the first time I ever experimented with starvation was, I think I was 10 years old, maybe 11. I remember it was the summer before sixth grade. And I really wanted to go back to school and have that beautiful American transformation story where I would go from this ugly duckling to this swan, like in a matter of three months. And I had seen it on so many movies, it felt possible. In the book, you talk about a movie at the time. I forget the name of the movie that was your life where this transformation happened. Do you remember? Yes, it was Grease. There were two movies. Like the two movies that informed my dream were like, She's Out of Control, starring Tony Danza. Yes, that's the one you mentioned. And then Grease, like the moment where she transforms into this total like rockabilly babe. That was going to be my swan song or whatever. Like when I finally became a thin sick grader, that was going to be my dance, right? So I knew even at that time that if I wanted those extreme results, I had to take extreme measures. And I was like, the fastest way to do it is to reduce food to pretty much nothing. And I ate only like lettuce and toast for three months. And then I remember going to my doctor after that summer and I was, I had 
change sizes pretty radically. Clearly, that's what happens when you don't eat anything. And he just said, congratulations. And if you just keep losing weight, maybe you can date one of my sons. And there was no Mm. question of this child on the verge of pubescence. Like, what's going on? Why are you, what what are you doing differently? This is alarming. There was just none of that from anybody. It really hit me when I I just reread your book over the weekend. And it really hit me again, that story, that because... It was tied to love. It was tied to, you get to date one of my sons if you become acceptable. Yeah. And then it reminded me of another story in your book when you, I think you were alluded to earlier, when you were five years old and you noticed that this boy was looking up all the girls' skirts, but he wasn't looking up your skirt. Yeah. And I believe in the book, he was one of the first people who called you fat, if I recall correctly. Yes, totally. And I write about this in the book that even then I felt a connection between understanding that it was no coincidence that the boy who looked up girl skirts was the first boy who called me fat. Like I completely understood the connection between gender, desirability, misogyny, rape culture, and fat phobia, like intuitively as a child. And it kept coming up for me over and over again, this desire for love and how mm. it, and we all want to be loved, right? Yeah. And the relationship between that, diet culture, and fat phobia. Can you just define for us, though, what is fat phobia and what is diet culture? So people have a real understanding, because that is the piece that really hit me hard when I read that excerpt. From your book. Yeah, yeah. Fat phobia is a form of bigotry and discrimination that essentially says that fat people are morally, intellectually, and physically inferior. In our culture right now, we don't see it as a form of discrimination. We see it as an attitude that emerges out of health concerns. And there's this false belief that if we stigmatize and abuse fat people enough, that they will fall into line and become like the right kind of person. Um, in terms of diet culture, what makes something a culture is when, and when it's ubiquitous and you can't escape it. So it's like the general messaging that's all around us every single day that weight loss at any cost is positive, that no matter what, things will be better if you are a thinner person, and that essentially the worst thing that you could be is a fat person. And anything that you can do to not be that, you should undertake it. And the diet industry is a very robust multi-million dollar industry that disproportionately predates upon women. So that's how I would define those things. Wow. The section in your book that got me was that... um, Basically, when you say that we either, let me just read it. Girl, let me just read it to you. (laughs) You write, (laughs) you write, fat phobia targets and scapegoats fat people, but it ends up harming all people. Everyone ends up in one of two camps. This is the piece that got me. They are either living the pointed reality of fat phobic bigotry, or they are living in fear of becoming subject to it. When I read that, I was like, oh. I just, I stopped breathing. I was like, because it was the fear. I was like, this fear is so real, especially for me as I've gotten older (laughs) um, and my metabolism has slowed down and like I ate whatever I wanted to when I was younger and being in the public eye Mm, and having people comment on your body. It just hit me. And I feel like that is the piece that I would love people to understand and take away from this conversation that we are all implicated. And I, 
I am a little critical of the idea of a binary, but I think in the context of fat phobia and a fat phobic culture, maybe that binary stands, right? We're either experiencing the bigotry of fat phobia or we're in constant fear of it. And it like polices our bodies. Mm -hmm. That fear, that mentality constantly has us policing our bodies. Other people are policing our bodies. Medical professionals are policing our bodies. I want to talk about the health stuff, but I think the pain of it for me is what hits me when I read your work and when I think about my own journey around weight, body, image, all that stuff. Yeah, I think to your point, we live in a culture that forces everything into a binary. And it that is a method of control. And we see the inescapability of how these binaries really impact us. When it comes to fat phobia or really anything, every single person, not just the group that is the target of the stigma or the abuse or the oppression, we are all impacted and touched as human beings by the experience. If we're on the receiving end, obviously we're experiencing a very extreme version of that impact. But the people who are witnessing and colluding, who are forced to collude by virtue of the way the system is constructed, How can their spirits also not be eroded? How can they also not be impacted? And I think, and first of all, right, it hurts our spirits and our hearts and our collective, whatever, like our collective unconscious, if you will, to be enlisted in that process. And then I think the fear piece really is like, even if you are not somebody who's on the receiving end of that today, you could be on the receiving end of that tomorrow. And the body in particular is something that does change, right? Like it changes every day. This idea that you could become a victim of it, it's like the whip, you know what I mean? Because I think there's like the carrot side of fat phobia and diet culture, which is like, these are the social benefits you get if you comply. And this is what your life could look like if you don't. Yeah. And I think what's really crucial about your work is how clear it is that this is something that is systemic, right? That this is something Mm. that is structural, that is enforced by so many different systems. On this podcast and in my life, I always like to think about things in terms of structural issues and, and, and systemic issues, but then also where is my part in it? Where is my sort of personal responsibility in relationship to it, i.e. the potential for resistance? So where is the resistance piece and where is my personal responsibility? But I think like just making something personal responsibility doesn't acknowledge how something is systemic. And I think thinking about it in relationship to systemic racism, which people have been having a lot more conversations about lately, is, is a great way to begin to think about fat phobia and diet culture as something that we're all implicated in, whether we want to be or not. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things that I think about, even in my own work as someone who really does try to teach people tools on how to navigate these systems, one of the things that's really complicated is like these tools rely on resiliency, which I mean, resiliency is beautiful, but resiliency is not going to end systemic oppression, right? Like this over-reliance upon the people who are experiencing the oppression to work their way through it and somehow make it work and make it cute. Fundamentally, like, I don't know what else we could do. Like surviving is, is the only option we have, but it's not fair to put that burden on the people who are experiencing the oppression to also end the oppression. Hopefully we can begin to raise awareness and raise consciousness so that once we have the information and we know better and hopefully we'll do better. Time for a quick break. When we come back, Virgie and I talk about how people's concern for the health of fat people is just an excuse to stigmatize. 
Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Escape to summer with Victoria's Secret. Pack your bags with just-arrived swim, cover-ups, corset tops, and other sexy silhouettes. When the sun goes down, opt for bold and blingy styles, like the made-to-be-seen Very Sexy Push-Up Bra from the Very Sexy Collection, in on-trend hues like Black Shine, Green, and Citron. For a glam statement, pair them with your favorite jeans and bring the heat. Because life is better in a bikini. Rewind to the future with the VS Archive Swim Collection, inspired by Victoria's Secret's classic looks from the 90s and early 2000s. For endless out-of-office options, mix and match with Victoria's Secret's wide range of bikini tops and bottoms that offer you every type of coverage, from full to cheeky to minimal. And now, in this season's must-have shades and patterns, add the finishing touch with the limited-edition Bombshell Escape fragrance, a free-spirited take on the iconic Victoria's Secret scent. Dive into a vibrant blend of juicy guava, lush palms, and summer glow peony. Shop now at your closest Victoria's Secret store or online at victoriasecret.com. Alrighty then, let's just dive right back in. Most people say is, what about health concerns, right? That like, what does it mean to be healthy? That fat is unhealthy. That is the immediate thing that people go to when they address your work and people who are in in a space of body positivity, that this is unhealthy. Mm. What do you say to those people, darling? Yes. I mean, on the one hand, right, I I do find that the health argument is mostly a decoy. And I think for me, I'm talking about human rights. I've always been talking about human rights. Like if you're somebody who can look at the reality of the fact that like plus size women make $9,000 less annually than their their straight size counterparts, when you look at the reality that fat people experience romantic discrimination or refuse proper medical care, if you can kind of look at that scenario and your primary concern coming out of that is are these people 
cardiometabolically healthy, I think you've really missed a crucial point, which is that when people are being denied basic human rights and dignity, that's a very urgent issue. And so I find that like some people actually do have legitimate concerns about, you know, what are the implications of this politic? But I do find that a lot of people weaponize the health conversation as a way to derail a conversation that's really about a systemic problem. And again, with the health issue, going back to the individual versus the system, I'm somebody who has had to deep dive on understanding health a lot more. I mean, that's not my area of expertise at all, but I've had to equip myself to to be able to talk about it. And one of the things I often point out to people is I'm like, okay, if you look at the CDC guidelines for health, you can easily and quickly begin to understand that health doesn't happen in a vacuum. Health is a collective thing that happens, right? Health is something that you have when you have access to a doctor, when you have access to transportation, when you don't have trauma, when you're not abused, when you don't have to live in fear of whether someone's going to hurt you when you leave your house. And that very individual argument of the individual is responsible for having good heart health, living a long, good life, right? And we have a system where there's no universal universal health care. There's not even universal access to clean water. And we're looking at a rollback on resources for women's health, you know. So for me, I'm like, what does the word health mean to you? If even the CDC understands that health is a community-based entity. Individuals don't create that on their own. And I think the last thing I'm going to say is, Actually, I have two more things I want to say. Like one really compelling piece of research that I found was that the chances of a woman who is classified as overweight becoming a normal weight is less than 1%. Mm. And that's like looking at all of the studies. And then what happens with dieting, with food restriction, is that people don't actually lose weight. They actually cycle through gaining and and losing, regaining and losing the same amount of weight over and over again with a longitudinal trend upward. Can I slow you down there? Because (laughs) I want you to say that one more time because I think that everybody knows that's the truth. That is the truth. We know that. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people call it weight loss, but it's actually weight cycling. And what's really hard is this is something that people don't realize. And again, if you've been in this cycle, you know it, is like the emotional ups and downs are very damaging, right? Dieting is correlated with anxiety and depression. It is not correlated with long-term weight loss. I think that's what people don't realize. Mm. And so what happens is like the emotional process of you lose the weight. You're so happy. Everyone's telling you how incredible you look. Maybe that person who you've been flirting with all of a sudden wants to like hang out, right? And then you gain the weight and you feel like a failure and you feel like your world is ending and you feel like something's wrong with you and you begin to evaluate and those compliments go away. And if you can imagine that over a lifetime, how many times that happens, it's very, very debilitating. But I think what's interesting is from a social perspective, I mean, it really is like bootstrapping and assimilation. It's like that American dream of I can make myself anything if I work hard enough. And so you're in that cycle over and over again. And each time you think this is going to be the time, this is going to be the time that it works. I think what's interesting is this process of disappointment, success, disappointment, success, that keeps us believing that all these other processes in our culture that don't fundamentally work because there's social injustice built into the system, like it normalizes those processes too. So we do capitalism with our bodies through diet culture. We do white supremacy through diet culture, right? I I love that. What I want to emphasize about what you just said, the aha that I just had is that 
Whether or not someone is healthy is actually none of our business. If we're lucky enough to have a doctor, that's Mm. between us and our doctor. Dealing with someone else's health should not be my concern. All the people out there who want to sort of police people's bodies and say they're unhealthy, and then because they're unhealthy, we should shame them, we should stigmatize them. That is what we need to let go of. Yeah, and I think another thing when you were talking, I was thinking about this finding from a UCLA professor named Janet Tomiyama. She did this meta-study, which is essentially like looking at all the studies that are in that area of findings. And she found that there were over 70 million Americans who were either fat and were misdiagnosed as unhealthy or thin and misdiagnosed as healthy. And this has like these incredible implications, right? Because right now, both socially and medically, the biggest way that doctors understand health is by visually checking, are you thin or are you fat? That's literally like the most important factor in whether or not a doctor is going to Ask, how are you eating? How are you feeling? Do any tests around your blood sugar? Do any tests around whether you have high blood pressure? They just look at a thin person and think, oh, that person doesn't have high blood pressure. And they look at a fat person and say, oh, that person probably does. I think really what has become clear to me is that this approach is both bigoted and it's anti-scientific, right? It's not like there's, it's not winning on any front, you know? Wow, it just makes me think about so many issues with our healthcare system and how that's another conversation. Wow, Virgie. So you alluded (laughs) to white supremacy, and I love the ways in which you talk about the relationships between sexism, patriarchy, fat phobia, white supremacy, classism. Can you break down some of those intersections. Yeah, I think for a long time, I thought diet culture and fat phobia were really about beauty ideals because that's still the dominant idea that somebody who is fat or thin, it's about whether they're beautiful or they're not beautiful. But like when you really unpack it, you begin to see that it is totally attached to all of these very, very ingrained systems and ideologies that make up like the West and the United States in particular. And I think for me, one really big breakthrough was around understanding that dieting was a way that people of color could express a desire to be in line with an ideology that white people really promoted and that Americans in particular promoted. And just seeing that even in my own family, like, you know, I grew up in an immigrant family from Mexico and I saw that dieting was a way that they could perform Americanness. And I saw that they undertook it as a way to be socially legible, They had internalized the idea that weight loss was a positive thing. But more than that, it was a way of fitting in. And I think this actually leads really well into gender, right? Like dieting is a way that women have been socialized to create intimacy, Like our body dissatisfaction, that moment in front of the mirror, that moment when we're going to the bakery and we're like having that experience of, oh my God, should I, shouldn't I? That's so evil, right? Am I going to be good? Am I going to be bad? That is a way that women have been taught to create friendship. And I think what a distorted, disgusting, like shaming and, and being anxious about food should not be a thing that people are expected to bond over. But that's kind of the reality that we have going on. Like, I mean, like my academic background is actually in sexuality studies. And as I was doing the work, I was being introduced to all these historical figures, right? And like two of these really incredible historical figures, interesting, I should say, historical figures. 
figures were these really intense anti-masturbation advocates who like in the 1800s were just obsessed with everybody not masturbating. And they, and they were like <laughs> legit like hated pleasure. The stuff that they were proposing was like really intense. But the whole idea was, you know, you, you shouldn't masturbate. Respectable white men had to have control over their sexuality. Okay. Then I become like interested in studying fatness and food and all these kinds of cultures around dieting and stuff. And these same dudes resurface. They're also clean eating advocates. These anti-masturbation dudes who hate sex are the same people who are promoting clean eating. And all of a sudden I was like, ha ha ha, what's that about? That's weird. That's an interesting connection. But it all came together in my head. I'm like, right, you got to control how you eat. You got to control pleasure. All forms of pleasure have to be controlled. Why? Because you had to be distinguishable from the savages who you were enslaving and murdering. Right? So it's like, okay. Yes. So this idea was like these Europeans come and they meet indigenous populations. And these Europeans have these extremely Christian puritanical views. And these Native folks have a much more spiritual, much more integrated, holistic. They don't believe in private ownership, like in general. And there's not taboos around sex. And the way that Europeans begin to rationalize their, essentially what will become a genocide, is to say these people are subhuman. And how do we know? Because we have this disciplined relationship to our animal selves, and these people do not. The same is true with slavery. Colonialism, slavery, genocide, right? This kind of like trifecta of behaviors really relied upon a rationalizing ideology that said some people are subhuman and we can take everything from them and we can kill them with impunity. And some people are superior and they get to not only rule the world, but they get to rule the future. And I kind of think like this is like what Manifest Destiny is really about. I think what's interesting about that connection between like white people owning the future is so you you can kind of see it. It's ripples in diet culture all over the place. But like one of them is the, the preoccupation with the future self, right? The idea that someday I'll be able to wear that skirt. Someday I'll be able to wear that lipstick. Someday I'll be able to smile in photographs or do that thing I really want to do in, a, in the future. And I think that preoccupation with the future has a real connection with that manifest destiny kind of ideation of maintaining a future that is white, that is slender, that is athletic, that has all these sort of characteristics. Girl, you have just said a mouthful. I'm like, my mind is sort of racing. This whole piece of in the future when I'm thin enough, right? Then I can begin my life. In the last chapter of your book, you talk about freedom and you talk about what freedom is and that you thought that dieting and thinness were freedom. And you Mm. learn that they're quite the opposite. And I kept thinking Mm. about those, what Brene Brown calls the prerequisites to worthiness. Brene Brown is a shame researcher who I I reference all the time. And she defines shame as the intensely painful belief that we have about ourselves that we're unworthy of connection and belonging. She says that guilt is, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. And shame is, I'm sorry, I am a mistake. Mm. So as I was reading your book, I was just like, oh my, this is shame. This is just like one, two, threes of shame. And she said the way that we build shame resilience is to understand when we're in shame. And so knowing the prerequisites to worthiness is our way of knowing our shame triggers, right? The prerequisites Mm, to worthiness, i.e., I will be worthy when I lose 20 pounds. I'll be worthy when I change my hair or get this degree or whatever. And the 
beautiful thing that she says in her work is that worthiness has no prerequisites, that worthiness is a Mm. birthright, that we are worthy because we were born. And so building shame resilience is about letting go of all those prerequisites. And diet culture and thinness, for me, it's certainly been one of my big prerequisites to worthiness. I will be ready when, and Mm. and having to consciously let go of that on a daily basis, some days I do better than others. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that preoccupation with a future self, I remember reading a study that actually Dove did around the percentage of women who opted out of important life events because they didn't feel like they were satisfied with their bodies, right? Like, what do you call that? Just even saying that just brings chills. That is dehumanization, Completely. And I think going back to a colonial concept of ghosting, right? The idea that like these people are still here, but you're pretending they're dead. Um, Like Mm. we talk about indigenous people as if they don't exist anymore. And I think a lot about how diet culture is ghosting us. We're not here. The bodies that we have right now are imperfect and therefore they shouldn't exist. And how do I know that? Because this body doesn't even be, deserve to be documented. Like this idea that you, you won't even be photographed. Like you don't want to have a, you don't want to get married. You don't want to go to the prom. You don't like, you, you don't want to do these things that are important markers, not only of societal participation, but that have really important meaning for people. You don't want to participate in them as a fat person, as the person that you are right now means that you don't want to be like documented in history. And I just think there's something so intense about that realization and that kind of like that process of just waiting around for you to be the kind of person who is worthy enough to be documented, to have joy and all of those things, you know? It's so sad. It's so sad. So is there a way Mm. out? What is our resistance? What is the thing that we can do as individuals to begin to free ourselves, to decolonize ourselves, if you will, from a culture of fat phobia? Yeah, I think that there's so many things. I want to start with sort of like the highest order thing, which is that we can imagine something different. Like one of the most powerful things that people can do is actually envision what would, and there's this thought exercise in the book where I'm like, imagine a world where you don't feel like there are any conditions to enjoying food, to wearing the clothes that you want, to going after the relationship that you desire, to expecting more from the people around you. What if there were no conditions, right? And I think what's powerful is we, when we imagine we create space in the collective unconscious, we create space in the universe. I do believe that there's that sort of metaphysical power. And, and so I think that's like a labor that we can all easily do that's so joyful and beautiful and fun. And I think what's hard is that when we live in a a culture that is so steeped in oppression, one of the most heartbreaking parts of that is that like diet culture, it kills our spirits. It kills our ability to imagine a world that could look different. And when we resist that and we say, like, I'm an imaginative, creative human being who can literally imagine, like, different structures, a totally different way that society functions, a totally different way to engage with the world, a totally different way to date. We have that power. I just want to pause you there because I I love the idea of that and I love the idea of doing it collectively, right? And then we can maybe begin to change the systems because we have to visualize it first. We have to be able to see it and then we can create it. So I just wanted to pause on that because I think that's really powerful. Go on, Virgie. (laughs) 
<laughs> I think that actually dovetails perfectly into what I was just going to say, which is like when we imagine we create the tools to build it, right? I mean, I can give you tactical tools right now and I want to give tactical tools, like some basic ones that help us navigate the culture as it exists right now. But what's so incredible is that the the tools that we need to build that gorgeous future, they maybe haven't been built yet. Like maybe the, mm. somebody listening is going to build those tools. I don't know. And, and I think that's what's so rad is that there's innovation on that other side. Um, but like tactically, I think it starts with really beginning to ask yourself, what are the things in my life that I feel I have to do? And do they bring me joy? What do they give me? Almost like that Marie Kondo sort of ideology where it's like, if you want to have room for new stuff, you've got to make the room. So it's like, what are you going to let go of in order to create that other thing? And I think in terms of like diet culture and actually engaging with like food, for instance, I think it's important to begin to really stop engaging in moralizing. Like this food is good. This food is bad. This food is evil. Like all these kinds of things, like these things actually have major impacts, not only on our psychology, but the people around us, right? Mm. One of the most astonishing things that I found when I started working with women was when I asked them. I was like, where do you experience the most triggers? I was shocked that they said the workplace. It was just this constant sense they couldn't eat their lunch without somebody watching or saying something or commenting. They couldn't have a birthday cake for their coworkers without everybody like losing their minds. What I want, what that brought up for me is a moment in your book when you, I, I think you were at a conference and how, mm. how culturally sanctioned it is to shame mm culturally acceptable to shame fat people. So our fear of being on the other side of that derision, I think often for those of us who may have found ourselves, you know, shaming or dehumanizing someone who's fat, that comes of our own fear and trauma around being on the other side of that. Yes. Yeah. It's it's a really shitty way that we create a sense of belonging, right? Like we're in this group and you're not. And like survival is tied up in that mechanism. Like if we're not on the other side of that, we actually are feeling this sense of relief. And, and it's just really intense, right? To think about it that way. And I think really like when you're thinking about fat shaming or transphobia or homophobia, like the ubiquitous kind of punchline groups, you really can tell, I can tell people don't even hear what they're saying. They have been taught this is completely acceptable and it's completely harmless. And I think that taking that moment to sort of interrogate, to sort of have that reflective moment and being aware that you do have power and what are you going to do with that power? Mm. Mm, 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 mm. I love it. It's that time again. Coming up after the break, Virgie and I get into the social effects of fat representation on runways and social media. Happy Pride from Tomboy X, celebrating pride in the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women, creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes three extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Me. 
Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Escape to summer with Victoria's Secret. Pack your bags with just-arrived swim, cover-ups, corset tops, and other sexy silhouettes. When the sun goes down, opt for bold and blingy styles, like the made-to-be-seen Very Sexy Push-Up Bra from the Very Sexy Collection, in on-trend hues like Black Shine, Green, and Citron. For a glam statement, pair them with your favorite jeans and bring the heat. Because life is better in a bikini. Rewind to the future with the VS Archive Swim Collection inspired by Victoria's Secret's classic looks from the 90s and early 2000s. For endless out-of-office options, mix and match with Victoria's Secret's wide range of bikini tops and bottoms that offer you every type of coverage, from full to cheeky to minimal. And now, in this season's must-have shades and patterns, add the finishing touch with the limited-edition Bombshell Escape fragrance, a free-spirited take on the iconic Victoria's Secret scent. Dive into a vibrant blend of juicy guava, lush palms, and summer glow peony. Shop now at your closest Victoria's Secret store or online at victoriasecret.com. Okay, we're back. Let's keep the conversation going. Do you think there's been progress in terms of representation? I mean, we see models like Ashley Graham and Tess Holliday. I mean, do you think visibility is helping? Visibility is, you know, an interesting trap, I think, for trans people. We've been very critical of that. Do you think things are getting better? Yeah, I really do. I'm a very hopeful person. I'm somebody who thinks that fat shaming could be a thing of the past. In, the, in my lifetime. I really do. So yeah, absolutely. I think that like the representation piece is really important. And, and I and I think that like you were mentioning, it's got like a shadow side for sure, because what it does is it creates another beauty ideal sometimes, which can be its own trap. But when you think about Tess Holliday, you think about Ashley Graham, these are people who emerged through a groundswell demand that we really began to see that had a platform finally on social media. Because for the first time, fat people were like, actually... I have a PhD. Actually, this is me looking super cute. Actually, I've got 14 booze. Actually, right? Like, you know, it's like, if you can see it, you can be it. Yeah. And I, I, I love that saying because I think at the end of the day, right, before all this happened, the only possible image of a fat person was somebody who you did not want to be at all. Mm. And I think that, like, when we create these Ashley Graham or Tess Holiday or any number of the people who are really popular, like, it, it really matters because they're creating a space in which dignity, beauty, autonomy and style are possible for fat people. And that, Mm. I mean, literally that is revolutionary in a culture that has only ever really seen and represented fat people as abject and pathetic and ugly and evil. 
Mm. Dignity and in, in being beautifully human. Oh my gosh. So, okay. One other thing I wanted to bring up, because I was thinking about the intersections again of colorism and racism and sexism, and then men, because my friend Matt McGorry, who I mentioned earlier, is the reason I read your book, and he's done such beautiful work around talking about masculinity and fat phobia and expectations around what men's bodies should be as well, that this isn't something that just affects women. Mm-hmm. It's something that affects all of us, which we've said here. Mm-hmm. But can you talk a little bit about, I guess, the men and then um, colorism? Yeah, I think it's interesting because my work is definitely focused on like women and feminine people. But what I have found when I've done research, like the first people who were pathologized around weight weren't women, they were men and they were specifically Jewish men. It was considered like a Jewish disease among men. So yeah, so the anxiety really rested in the court of masculinity to begin with. Mm. And then I really think that as the 20th century in particular unfolded, it became an issue that was more a feminine issue. Um, But yeah, one of the things that I noticed when I was researching how fat phobia intersected with masculinity and with men for the book was I was really compelled by the fact that fat men were also experiencing misogyny and sexism because one of the biggest concerns that people seem to have with fat men is not about necessarily health or beauty. It's about feminization. It's about the fact that like a fat man body is a soft body. And I think it goes back to the gender binary, right? Like this idea that I have to be able to tell exactly if you are masculine or if you are feminine instantaneously. And I do think that fat men and fat women, to be fair, like blur that line a little bit, right? Because like fat women are in the domain, quote unquote, in the domain of masculinity through our largeness. And fat men are in the domain of femininity due to softness. But like the memes that I kept seeing as I was doing the research were, were three that that really like were really astonishing in some ways. Like one was like the meme of fat men having breasts, which it, it, again, it's about gender anxiety. The second most common one was around the invisible penis, the way that the stomach covers the penis. And again, it's about feminization. And then the third one, which was this really bizarro finding was that there was this study that I I would argue is very poorly done, but it was about like this idea that fat men lasted longer during intercourse because they had more estrogen than thin men. And so like, again, estrogen, which is like this totally misunderstood hormone, right? Like it's connected to women and femininity in our culture. And this idea that like fat men have more of it and all of it just pointed to really fat men are experiencing both fat phobia and also misogyny. Um, And so it was fascinating to realize that intersection was so clear. And in terms of colorism, there's this incredible scholar named Sabrina Strings, and she wrote a book called Fearing the Black Body. And it's all about how fat phobia and anti-blackness are essentially the same thing. In what way? I mean, How are they the same thing? Yeah, so she talks about how when Europeans landed on the shores of Africa to essentially enslave people, that they saw these big bodies and they made the connection between the big bodies, their blackness, and this untamable animalistic nature that couldn't be disciplined out of a person. Um, and, and I have to name check another really incredible scholar, Deshaun Harrison, who is writing a new book called Belly of the Beast, 
they write about the fact that there's a really explicit connection between fat phobia and police violence and murder of Black men, because a lot of the Black men who have been murdered by police, and some of them have been boys, were fat or they were bigger people. And and I think there's this really intense moment, for instance— mm, Give me a second. Yeah. Give me a second. Mm-hmm. Give me a second. Ooh, yeah. I have to breathe that one in. I just—go on. I'm sorry. I, just yeah. to, I wanted to hear everything you're saying, but I just thought about Eric Garner and it just— Yeah, I mean, I think, like, I've been in the weeds with um, doing research around this, and I've been going through that cycle, too, uh, to speak about Eric Garner. So one of the reasons that the the police officer who murdered Eric Garner was exonerated was because the NYPD union lawyer argued that he died of obesity-related cardiac arrest, and that if he had been a healthy man— that he would have survived a choking maneuver, which is just, like, so vile and so, I mean, just so disgusting. Um, But, like, you know, when you're talking about anti-Blackness, any kind of largeness exacerbates anti-Blackness. Because Blackness is considered a threat in our culture, anything that adds any component of largeness, whether it be body fat or height or any number or even like even volume, right? Like even like sound, like the sound of my voice, the sound of my laughter. Largeness is not just about physicality, it's metaphorical. And so any kind of largeness is going to be experienced in our white supremacist culture as a further threat. I mean, excessive force is not exclusively for large or fat Black men, but, like, that element creates a sense that, like, you get to be extra, extra aggressive and violent and murderous. And I think that maps onto the reality that fat people are already always seen as capable of handling more emotionally, physically, right? And and the same is true of Black people. It's essentially a form of dehumanization. Um, and I think the last thing I want to say on that is when you think about the literal ways in which dark-skinned boys um, have been targeted by police, there's also this component of that is shared between anti-Blackness and fat phobia, which is the phenomenon of adultification, right? Like essentially the projection of an adult, like level of understanding, level of, you know, responsibility, control, and potentially malice. And you see how that combination becomes deadly in certain cases, That was so deep and so necessary to hear. I'm so glad I asked you about that. Thank you for that research. Thank you for sharing that. I like to end the podcast with a question, and the question is, what else is true? And this question comes from the idea of both and, that, yes, there are things that are challenging in the world, but what else is true? And this comes out of my um, somatic therapy of resetting my nervous system. Specifically, it's a, mm. it came out of what else is true in my body, right? That if I might have anxiety and I might feel that anxiety in the pit of my stomach, where in my body is it neutral or positive? And if I can mm. focus on what's neutral and positive, I can reset my nervous system. I can regulate, right? So I like to ask people, what else is true? So Virgie, right now for you, what else is true? I think right now I'm thinking about the relationship that I have with my cactuses. (laughs) I feel like 
Um, I started with one cactus named Lumpy, and I feel like we have this, like, I feel like they teach me the, the groundedness and, like, the joy of being round and prickly. So that's going to be my what else is true. Mm. <laughs> I feel like that's what else is going to that's, that's what my what else is true. <laughs> I love that. Your relationship with your cactuses that help you embrace being round and prickly. That is... <laughs> absolutely brilliant that is absolutely brilliant i love it and i love you virgie and i'm so utterly excited we got to have this conversation that was so brilliant i love you um can you tell the folks where they can find you what what else you got going on yes um so i'm pretty active on instagram at virgie tovar v-i-r-g-i-e-t-o-v as in victor a-r and i also have a podcast called rebel eaters club and you can um, check out my books you have the right to remain fat which is an audiobook and a digital book and a physical book and also the self-love revolution radical body positivity for girls of color yay thank you so much thank you Laverne Cox have a beautiful rest of day Ah, bye I love Virgie Tovar And I love this idea that Virgie spoke about around imagining something different, that perhaps one of you listening out there will have the idea, the innovation to move us closer to a world without fat phobia, without discrimination and stigma. If we can imagine it, we can create it, we can manifest it. Here's to a world where worthiness has no prerequisites. Thank you for listening to The Laverne Cox Show. Be sure to subscribe and rate us. You can also follow me on social media at Laverne Cox on Instagram and Twitter and at Laverne Cox for Real on Facebook. Join me next week as we talk about moving beyond the gender binary with internationally known poet, writer, and performance artist, Alok Vade Menon. Until next time, stay in the love. The Laverne Cox Show is a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from Shondaland Audio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.